athletic competition. It can easily be broken down into two parts. The minutes or hours it takes to complete the event. Then weeks, months, and years of joy or heartbreak. Finally, the decades to analyze and debate it. From the press box to press row, Donald Ware will break it all down for you with an in-depth look at historically black college athletics, as well as the biggest news stories and newsmakers of the day. It's time to talk the talk with those who walk the walk. From the press box to press row, here's your host, Donald Ware. You're locked in to the dopest show on radio from the press box to press row. I am your host, Donald Ware. We got a whole lot to get to, obviously, on today's program. The National Football League kicked off on Thursday. Ever since about April, I had been saying there's not going to be any football. There's not going to be any football. Really, I was saying more so for college football opposed to the NFL, although I did not think that the National Football League would be able to play. I gave the NFL more of a chance of playing than college football. Well, I can admit it. I was wrong really on both fronts. I mean, the thing about college right now, we have some college games that are going on. We're going to have more, you know, ACC kicks off this weekend. We're going to have more games that are going to be played this weekend amongst the bigger conferences, still the Big Ten. The Pac-12 won't be involved in the games either, but the the college football is going to get rocking and rolling. Man, I think the the conversation now is will the season be able to be finished? And I got to give credit to the National Football League has done a tremendous job. I, I and again to me, I mean, I I, it, I never was really against the National Football League playing. I just thought it was dangerous, but I definitely was against college football because now you're talking about student athletes, a lot of variables. When you're talking about the NFL, you're talking about professionals. This is what they do. Um, Those guys want to get paid, not generally speaking, generally speaking, not going to do anything to really wreck that, do anything reckless to prevent them from getting paid. Generally speaking, you're always going to have some that are going to generally, you know, that are, that will be reckless, but, you know, still, I don't think college football should be played. Uh, you're putting these young men at risk. These young, you're putting them at risk. These guys obviously want to play football, the majority of them. Now, you've had some that have opted out for the reasons of the coronavirus, uh, some that have opted out because of the coronavirus, but looking ahead to professional football. But all in all, three of the Power Five conferences going to play. The ACC gets things kicked off this week. Uh, it, it is, you know, it, this is where we are. We're and, and again, I get the money and all that, but we're putting at risk student athletes to participate in athletics for a monetary gain with respect to Conferences, conferences, schools, the NCAA, yet 
those young men specifically and young people generally speaking in athletics, but you have football that drives the bus, men's and women's basketball, and we're putting these young people at risk so that there can still be an industry and this industry is making money, yet those young people are not being paid. I definitely have a problem with that. Again, I'm on the side where I don't think Student, I think student athletes should receive some form of compensation. My thought, as I've said many times in the past, should be more of a stipend and, and a legitimate stipend, not just a couple of dollars here and there, a legitimate stipend, where you know, because I think especially amongst younger people it could cause issues. But again, you're you're asking these student athletes to play and they're not being compensated. Uh, I mean, at the same time, it's their choice. I mean, I, I, you know, I think, I think, you, you know, the student athletes have to take some responsibility, but I think, you know, when you're, when you're young, you know, we were all young, like you're not thinking like that, like you just want to play, you know, and they just want to play. And that's why I was against it because I think you have to take, even though they're adults, you have to take some of those decision-making, that decision-making from them in a lot of respects. But anyway, college football is rocking and rolling. The National Football League going to get things kicked off. As a matter of fact, already got things kicked off on Thursday. Going to get uh, the bulk of the season started on Sunday. So we're going to talk some National Football League today here on the program. Also today here on From the Press Box to Press Row, there is the AC. a lot of the ACC coaches and really are united in terms of the men's tournament this year, the NCAA Division I men's tournament this year, including all of the Division I schools. Every Division I school would be included in the NCAA tournament. I thought that was rather interesting. My, my initial reaction was, how will you do that? I mean, because we're talking about well in excess of 300 schools. I think it's something like close, maybe close to... 350 Division I men's basketball schools. So my initial thought is how will you do that? And and part of the proposal is to take away the non-conference part of that because remember, when you're talking about the mid-major, the smaller schools, that's how the schools, especially when you're talking about schools in the SWAC, you're talking about schools in the MEAC, you're talking about Hampton, you're talking about Tennessee State when we're talking about Division One HBCUs, that is how those schools get paid through non-conference games against bigger schools and more specifically against what we would consider Power Five schools. So, I mean, to be able to put on a tournament like that, I mean, that is a huge, huge, huge undertaking. Um, I think if you were looking at a bubble situation for the tournament with the 68 schools may have proved to be difficult. Maybe not. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think there's some things that you can do. If you, if, if you do it correctly, you could have a bubble situation. I think you'd have to have probably have more host cities to have these games at, but I mean, it's probably something that's doable, but now we're talking about the potential for 347 schools. Um, And again, this would help those smaller schools because you have, at least in the ACC, you have those schools talking about not playing non 
conference games. They're going to make their game. I mean, they're going to make their money. It's no question about that. We already know that from TV revenue. Even if you don't have stands in the fan, uh, fans in the stands by that time, the ACC, more specifically Big Ten, definitely going to make money or make its money from the TV revenue. So I think that's an interesting situation that we'll also discuss today here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Getting back to the National Football League, uh, we, we talk about this every year. We're going to talk more about the HBCU players that have made opening day rosters. HBCU players that have made opening day rosters. The numbers are down this year in terms of the numbers that have made opening day rosters opposed to last year, certainly opposed to years past. A lot of players able to make what they what they formerly called taxi squads or practice squads as well. As a matter of fact, a couple of players from that played in 2019 able to make taxi squads. And so I, I want to talk about that, the numbers of players, who those players are. And again, I mean, the numbers are way down. We're, we've, we've talked a lot, especially more recently, about four or five-star players coming to play at HBCUs from a basketball perspective, uh, more specifically at the Division I level. And we have touched on but not talked probably enough about it from a football standpoint. And maybe some of the – it's just different. I mean, it's a, it's a lot different, obviously, because you're talking about mostly those four- and five-star guys and really five-star guys. It's mostly the one-and-done guys that we're talking about. I mean, why not play? If you're one-and-done, why not play at an HBCU? You're one-and-done anyway. So it's 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 sort of it's different. It's no question about that. But, again, when you're talking about some of the all-time greats that have ever played in the National Football League, there are now, there, were th- there are three more players that are going to be inducted into the uh, Hall of Fame this year, and we'll talk more about those players that played at HBCU. So now you're, I think it's up to 33 or 34 players that went to HBCUs that are currently or, or in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and I can tell you a couple of more that should be and are not yet in the Pro Football Hall of Fame to say that some of the greatest players to ever play the game played at HBCUs. And so hopefully we'll see a trend where, we'll, where, where in fact, on opening day rosters, we're going to see more HBCU players that are um, going to, to be on opening day rosters, going to play in the National Football League um, that will, in fact, uh, in the near future. So we'll talk more about that as well. Your participation here on From the Press Box to Press Row always warranted. Hit me up via Twitter at Box to Row, B-O-X-T-O-R-O-W, or on Facebook, B-O-X, the number two, R-O-W. You can also hit me up on my personal Twitter account, at dware one at dware one Also on my personal Instagram account, at where Donald. Thank you to all the great affiliates around the country that carry 
from the press box to press row, those listening to us on Sirius XM channel 142 and those listening to us around the world at BoxToRow.com. I'm up against the break. I want to talk about Lou Brock, who passed away earlier in the week. Also, as from the press box to press row rolls on. The old renaissance is the new renaissance. Standing on tradition while embracing the spirit of distinction. This is the Harlem Brewing Company. Uniquely crafted beer brewed to deliver a taste, a sound, and a feeling that can only be described in one way. Harlem style. So come and take a trip on the A-Train with our Harlem Sugar Hill Golden Ale and our Harlem Renaissance Whip Beer. The neighborhood original. Sponsored by Harlem Beer Distributing North Carolina. Served in total wine all over North Carolina. Fresh Market in North Carolina and Virginia. Weaver Street Market in Raleigh, Durham, Carborough, and Hillsborough. You can also purchase in Durham at Zwelly's, Saltbox, Sam's Bottle Shop, and Bull McCabe's. And in Greensboro at Elm Street Lounge and Cooper's Ale House. Hey, what happened to all the Marjorie's beef jerky? Hey, what's up, bro? It was you, wasn't it? What was? Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You ate all the Marjorie's beef jerky, didn't you? Yeah, so what? That was mine. Dad just bought that for me yesterday. Don't worry, I'll just go online and buy some more. No big deal. Wait, you can just go online and buy more? Well, in that case, I'm going to buy the original orange teriyaki and sweet and spicy. But I do expect you to pay me back for all that beef jerky you ate. Marjorie's Beef Jerky, the best beef jerky on the planet. Purchase Marjorie's Beef Jerky online right now at Marjorie'sBeefJerky.com. That's Marjorie'sBeefJerky.com. Or call them toll-free, 844-340-7613. Marjorie's Beef Jerky, the best beef jerky on the planet. You're listening to From the Press Box to Press Row. I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it. It said they were suckers. Still to come here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Some NBA talk. Some National Football League talk. Plus, HBCU players that are on NFL rosters for opening day. That's all still to come here on the program. 2020 has been just a very tough year for so many different reasons. Kobe, we we talked about this last week. It started with Kobe Bryant shortly thereafter. COVID-19, got the announcement about COVID-19, didn't really know about that. I think we have a better, we understand it a little bit better, but it's still taking people out left and right. Last week, John Thompson passed away. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, you know, it, it it was John Lewis, and so many people have passed away this year. Well, another gentleman that passed away, as a matter of fact, last week, Lou Brock, one of the greatest baseball players to ever play. Maybe, I mean, we, we talk a lot about Ricky Henderson, but before Ricky Henderson, there was Lou Brock, sweet Lou Brock, most notably, most notably playing for the St. Louis Cardinals and what a phenomenal player. As a matter of fact, he's an alum of Southern University. I mean, I think about some of the that, that come off the top of my head, some of the HBCU uh, players that played 
in Major League Baseball. You have the 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 Larry Dolbys of the world. Of course, Larry Dolby was the first black player. Uh, the first black player in the American League was a Virginia Union guy. You know, you talk about a guy uh, like a Cecil Cooper who played for many years was a, r- a really good player who who played uh, who went to Prairie View A and M and the list really goes on and on. Man, growing up an Orioles fan, Al Bumry, a Virginia State guy, uh, played for the Orioles. Lou Brock was a legendary player, great hitter, phenomenal base stealer, and ultimately a winner. Played back in the day with the likes of Bob Gibson and all those, that 64 and 67 World Championship St. Louis Cardinals team. Well, had a chance to actually catch, and it's interesting because we do these interviews, and generally when we do these interviews, a segment or an interview is going to last maybe, and you've heard the show, I mean, maybe we're good. 10 to 12 minutes, sometimes we'll go a little bit extended, so we'll, you know, ask the person to hold on, taking a break, we'll come back. Back in 2014, February, as a matter of fact, Black History Month uh, at that, had a chance to catch up with Lou Brock, and as I was prepping for this show a couple of days ago, I realized that the interview we had with Lou Brock was almost an hour. I couldn't believe it. I, I was thinking maybe we had a, I, I thought we had a, a, a more of an extended interview because I can remember we posted that interview back, back in 2014 on our website at box2row.com. But it seemed like it was a 30 minute interview. But again, that was six years ago or six and a half years ago. An hour interview with Lou Brock. So we're going to play replay part, not the whole hour, obviously, but we're going to replay part of that interview with Lou Brock, an important interview. Because, again, when you talk about Major League Baseball and you talk about MLB now, back when Lou Brock was playing, there were a lot of black players that played in Major League Baseball. Now, not so much. I think the number's around 4% of the players that are in Major League Baseball are African-American. And so, want to replay because we had a great conversation about playing for the Cardinals, about playing back in the day when blacks were more prominent and of course talking with him about his time, which I learned a lot. He, he shared a lot of knowledge about his time at Southern university. And I got to give a big shout out to former Southern manager, Roger Kador had him on the program many a time when he was the head coach of the baseball program at Southern. He was the one who was able to connect me and connect us with Lou Brock. So again, Lou Brock in his own words from back in 2014 here on from the press box to press row. Didn't even know, you know, that you had been with the Cubs a couple of years before St. Louis. What were those days like uh, with the Cubs for you? Actually, they were like boot camps. Uh, I hate to put it that way, but that's about what it was. I was learning how to maneuver my way around the big leagues and trying to become acclimated. Most of the time, a, a kid come up to the big leagues, he got about three years to prove, prove himself. Uh, I, I, and that third year with the Cubs, I was traded. I had already begun to uh, hit the ball, hit the ball well. And the defining moment, every ball player has a defining moment that actually, actually he gathered 
that I can now play with these guys. Uh, once that is assessment is made, uh, you're going to be okay. That happened to me as a Cub. It just manifested itself down in St. Louis, and everybody thought it was the food in St. Louis that caused it different. <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> I had reached that, that, that point where I can now play with these guys. Once that assessment is made, uh, generally you're on your way. Well, what was that? Def- I mean, it, was it a specific, you know, in a specific event, uh, a, a hit, a stolen base, a home run? What, what, what exactly defined that moment for you when you realized I can play in the major leagues? When, when I found out I could play with these guys, actually, it was a fly ball that was hit to right center field that was hit to some distance by Veda Pinson. There was a player named Veda Pinson had speed; he could run with the best of them. And Vader hit a line drive towards right center field, and I uh, decided to challenge the ball. Went up against a 14-foot wall to catch it. And if I didn't catch it, Vader Pinton, one of the fast men in baseball, not only had a double, but now we get a home run because Brock challenged the ball. And as I went up against the wall, came down, looked for the ball, knowing full of well, didn't catch it, Vader was running as though the ball was out of the ballpark. Uh, he had seen the ball roll around in the, in the outfield. Practically, uh, I decided to uh, look for the ball. <laughs> and as I was looking around, frantically looking, 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 a fan says to me, if you look in your glove, you may find it. <laughs> and I was a little teed up at the pen because – that was sort of a, a ridicule, and uh, but I had no choice. There was I couldn't find the ball. Ball was not in the stand. Where did it go? And I looked at my glove, and that was it. And I began to laugh, and I laughed from from the wall all the way to the dugout. And that was the, the defining moment that said, "I now can play with these guys." And from that day forward, uh, I began to hit three hundred plus for the next. Uh, 17, 18 years. <laughs> Absolutely. That is a great, great story. Now, with the Cubs, so now were you, uh, as we've, we had, of course, uh, on the program uh, some years ago, I guess some eight years ago or, or so, uh, the late Buck O'Neill. Now, was he, was he, he was a coach in Chicago when you were there. Am I right about that? Well, Buck and I, uh, our history go back to Southern University when I was about 19 years old. Buck, he used to scout that area and just stop in at Southern University every year and watch the team play. And uh, one day, Buck came in, and I had a pretty good day against Wiley College. And Buck gave me his uh, scouting card, calling card, with his name on it. It says Major League Baseball. A few years later, I was signed by Buck, and Buck and I have always... uh, in fact, he adopted me as his son. He used to take me out <laughs> at Southern University to to uh, five-star restaurants, and he said to me, he said across from me, he said, this is a fork. It goes on this side of the place. <laughs> and uh, I'm sitting there thinking, now, why is this man telling me that? And then one day he said, you know, you just may make the major leagues. And uh, three years later, I was. I did make the major leagues. Buck was named the first black coach in that period of time because the Cubs brought him into the big leagues to be my roommate, that I would make some of these adjustments that needed to be made to become a big league ball player. So Buck and I go way back. I named one of my kids after Buck. So he has been in my life 
ever since I was 19 years old. Your story is so fascinating because you didn't start playing, at least what I was reading, you didn't start playing baseball until you were in the 11th grade. That Going to Southern University, you weren't even going there to play baseball. You were going to uh, on, a, on an academic scholarship, and I want to talk more about that. But when you were traded from Chicago to St. Louis, uh, originally, though, you, you wanted to play for St. Louis anyway, even before you started playing for the Cubs. Am, am I right about that? Well, I, I don't know if that was before the draft. There was no draft in baseball. A uh, ball club that chose the ball player, and they went out to see if they could sign him. And two or three ball clubs uh, chose that same player, and then there was a war on as to who was signing. Uh, the Cardinal had the lead, uh, and the, in my case, I was brought into St. Louis by the St. Louis Cardinal to work out. And prior to signing the uh, professional professional baseball contract, however, when I got to St. Louis, the scout was in Washington, state of Washington. He's signing up a guy named Ray Washburn, pretty good pitcher. And I didn't know anybody in St. Louis, so I got back on the bus and went to Chicago and worked out. And the Cubs signed me before the scout in St. Louis to get back in touch with me. So that's how it happened, and that's why most people think that uh, uh, I was destined for the St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah, no question. And maybe if that doesn't happen, maybe you don't have the career that you have. Those two years in Chicago, as you mentioned, made you the the ball player that you that you ultimately became, and, and allowed you. And like you said, hey, I know I belong. First year in St. Louis after the trade. I mean. What a what a I mean what a storybook sort of situation because the fact of the matter is you guys win the World Series you were a very integral part of that World Series championship in 1964 and and along the way uh, you got to uh, do well against your former team the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> well, one of the things that people don't, don't realize, and I, I should say I didn't realize, I came into baseball with Chicago playing all day games, and which was something I did at Southern University. But uh, in Chicago, everybody played night ball, big league, except the Chicago Cubs. And I played center field, which was a sun field. And believe me, uh, Donald, there was no sun field at Southern University. <laughs> when, the ball, when the ball was hit, you did not look in the sun first and then try to find the ball. Well, that happened to me in Chicago, which was a real setback. Uh, but I could always hit. And I hit some long home runs in Chicago, had some, what I thought, turbo years were the bad. If I was playing today, there would be good years when you hit 260. But when I got to St. Louis, uh, there was no strong feel. Like, wow, this is basically league baseball at its best. And so I was around hitters like Kurt Flood, Bill White, Stan Musio, Red Dings. And unlike Chicago, Chicago had a pretty good hitter, Billy William and Ernie Banks and Santos. So all teams got pretty good hitters. But those in St. Louis sort of uh, welcome you in a nice way. We, we got you because we want you. So yeah, there was always happen when you do get traded, your stock value goes up at that moment. And it's up to your performance whether it stays there or not. What a fascinating story by Lou Brock as it relates to Buck O'Neill who we had on this show back in 2006, the first black coach in Major League Baseball. More of our 2014 interview with Lou Brock as we celebrate his life after this small pause for the cause. This 
It's from the press box to press row. You're listening to From the Press Box to Press Row. That is the voice of Kevin Durant. Yeah, I mean, this community is, is unbelievable. They deserve to have a good team. They deserve to have a good group of guys. And um, I'm excited I get to play for them. You know, they support us in everything we do. And, uh, you know, it's a joy to, you know, go to work and, and know that you're going to be, uh, you know, they're going to cheer for you as loud as they can no matter who you're playing. I'm talking about none other than Serena Williams. That was definitely one of the better matches I've ever played. I've had it just like that. You know, it's really focused. It's really, you know, excited. Luda! Now, let me ask you, are you still having nightmares from the Falcons losing the Super Bowl a couple of months ago? <laughs> How dare you? Of course I'm still having nightmares. I'm still going through the morning process. But listen, listen, we're going to... We, we, if we gotta make it up, we gotta make it up this year. We gotta, we gotta come back strong, and we have to like literally make up for the loss. Snoop Dogg is on the mic. Pay attention. Oh man, thank you for having me, play in a real way. I mean, I'm so honored. The pressure's all mine. I became my uh, uncle to a lot of these MCs, to the people that love my music, to the, <laughs> to the game in general, because of the way that I treat people. And I feel like my career is representative of that. That's why the longevity is there. That's why the love is there. And that's why I maintain the status of, you know, being relevant for so many years. I'm talking about none other than Tony Dungy. It was even more special to me because I, I remember coming into the league as a player in 1978, and there were only seven uh, African-American coaches in the whole league. Assistants, there were no head coaches and just seven assistants. It was special. And then to win it and to always be uh, able to be thought of as the first one to do it, uh, that's going to be something I'll, I'll be proud of for a long time. Joined by Kevin Hart. Right now I'm on cloud nine. This is the time where I'm in demand, so you make the best of it. You pick great projects, you get behind them, and you put them out. And the goal is to keep them coming. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm trying to become a brand. And within that brand, I need to put myself in a position to become a mogul, to become a business. So that's making sure that you're in control of your destiny. Right now, I am. Ice Cube has been our guest. Hey, man, thanks for letting me talk a little music, uh, movies, and sports. Hey, my favorite three topics. From the Press Box to Press Row is the sports talk show that is the voice and the talk of HBCU sports with a flair for pro sports talk and entertainment. Check the show out online at www.boxtorow.com. That's From the Press Box to Press Row, real, relevant, radio. Reflecting on the life of Lou Brock here on From the Press Box to Press Row, he made an appearance on the program back in February of 2014. And what a fascinating story that he told about Buck O'Neill, who was the first black coach in Major League Baseball, talked about the fact that Buck O'Neill used to come down and scout Southern, scout other HBCUs, sort of took him under his wing, took him to a five-star restaurant and so forth, and really as Lou Brock mentioned, became more like a father figure. Now we're going to, again, this was an hour interview. This was almost a, this was a fifth, almost a 60 minute interview with Buck O'Neill back in 2014. In this segment, we're going to listen back more about him speaking about his time at Southern University. The great Lou Brock joins us here on the program by the time, Mr. Brock, you entered the major leagues, 1961, your first full season in, in 1962, Jackie Robinson had been had broken the color barrier some 14, 15 years previous. Those early days and throughout your career, you can speak on it throughout your career, but particularly those early days, 
14 to 15 years into the major league by, when the color barrier was broken. What was that like for you? What was that like for black ball players at that time? I may have been in the third generation of players that come in, the black players that come into major league baseball. Uh, certainly Jackie Robinson, then right behind that, four years later, there came Willie Mays, but Dunn Newcomb and, and uh, Roy Capanella all came in in 1947. Then other wave came in in 1951, you go black. And then five years later, you pick up Hank Aaron and and and, and uh, Ernie Banks and that crowd, then six to one. Then there was the Brock group that came in. Uh, and, and so the tension, racial tension, hadn't gone away, but it had lessened to some degree. And therefore, what Jackie Robinson went through, I would say 90% of us in that third wave didn't go through that. Uh, by that time, uh, acceptance, is there a word or not? But, uh, you know, acceptance is one of those things I'm going to play with it because I got no choice. Well, that had begun to take roots, and that's what I was caught up in. So I, I started out in St. Cloud, Minnesota, all white town, and I saw two black people. And I had just come from Southern University, Baton Rouge, where he saw nothing but black people. Right. So that was a shock for me, a culture shock uh, that I had to get over. So it had nothing to do with whether I could get over that kind of thing or not. It just I was thrust in it, and if I was going to make the big leagues, uh, I had to uh, make that adjustment. And I asked that question, and it sort of sets up the next question because, you know, all the things that we read about, you know, how, how great a, a player that Ty Cobb was, we read also that he was, in fact, a racist. And the, the fact of the matter is you broke his, his record of the most stolen bases of all time in 1973, what did that mean to you at that time? Well, it had a lot of meaning to me. In fact, uh, I was one of those players, believe it or not, there were several players in the big leagues that lived under the threat banner. I mean, you were threatened if you did this, threatened if you got this. I mean, these were real threats. Uh, Pac-Top uh, record uh, was no different. It brought on a, a threat. And uh, so then you as a person began to challenge that threat to see if that would come true. And once you're aware, but on a daily basis, there was security guards and bodyguards all around you, and you just had to play baseball. So I got a taste of what Jackie Robinson must have gone through. But by the same token, these things only came when you were challenging some major record that People did more broken, and we saw that in Hank Aaron, and we see that even today when players come out and challenge baseball historical records that has deep meanings. Before we we talk about Southern, one last thought about your playing days, and you you mentioned Bob Gibson, and he was you know such a great pitcher. How, how great? Because I think a lot of times when we look at the history of baseball. Sometimes, I, I, at least from where, where I sit, and again, never having seen him play, Bob Gibson seemed to have, have been, in, in the history of things, more of an underrated pitcher when you go back and we talk about now some of the great pitchers. How great a pitcher was Bob Gibson? Bob Gibson could have pitched in any generation, any time in the history of baseball. 
he can throw hard. He threw just as hard as your Nolan Rhymes. And uh, when I say that, he throws through the ball somewhere between 9,500 miles an hour. And the amazing part of it, he could maintain the stamina throughout a ball game. Uh, most players sort of get tied. Pitchers get tied about the seventh inning, and then here comes the second win. But, Bob, uh, by the time you got to his second win, uh, <laughs> the game was over. Uh, he was one of those guys that pitched real fast. And he used to say, I'm going to pitch today an hour and 59 minutes. I'm out of here. <laughs> so, I was 59 minutes. He struck out about 10 or 12. And he pitched a one or nothing ball game, and we were gone. Uh, so, he, he was a fantastic person, and you need the, the kind of drive that Bob had, you, had. You don't see very much in the big leagues today, and that was a drive to win at all costs within the bounds of fair play. Uh, he was just outstanding in that area. Of course, let's talk about Southern University and – now, you went to Southern. You didn't go to – and as I mentioned, you didn't start playing baseball until the 11th grade, but you didn't go to Southern to play baseball. You went on an academic scholarship, right? Yeah, I did. And if I, let me correct you. I actually, actually started playing in the ninth grade. Okay. Uh, the coach sort of lined up all the freshmen and uh, high school and whoever won a throwing contest got to be his pitchers, which he needed one pitcher. So I won the contest when I was on the team in high school. And But the 11th grade, uh, I found out I could hit. And uh, about the end of that, I also had some good grades in chemistry and math and off to uh, Southern University with an academic scholarship that I had to maintain a B average and got there and maintained a C-plus average, kicked out of school <laughs> with a C-plus average. And I got to tell you, Don, I thought it was unfair. Unfair to the degree I had a C-plus average. Guys in athletics had a C-plus average, and they were in school, and I'm out. And so I just followed the boys that said, try for the baseball team, see if you can be a walk-on. And uh, all that came to pass. Man, what? so what were those days like at Southern playing baseball? I, I, we'll talk more specifically about the NAIA National Championship, but just in general, those days at Southern playing baseball. Well, my entree, for an example, I told you I was a walk-on. I was out watching the ball club for about two weeks trying to decide whether or not I could uh, get the coach attention to tell him I could play baseball. And uh, I never could muster up the courage to do such. And a little boy came up to me one day and said, with a glove, pounding in his glove, I'm going to chase baseball for the teams, jumps out on the field, crossed the white line, which I had been looking at for about two weeks. <laughs> and the kid is chasing balls. Players like him. They pat him on the head when he gave them the ball. Uh, so I decided to join the kid. And one day, uh, chasing fly balls, giving the balls to the players. I passed out from exhaustion. And then the coach came to me and the trainer. Rather than said, roll him off the field while laying on the ground, I, I heard the coach say, get up, kid, and take five batting practice swings. And I actually thought he was talking to the kid that was with me, my companion, chasing fly balls. But anyway, he was talking to me. I got up and uh, with wobbly legs and all and uh, hit three out of five out of the ballpark. And I was given an athletic scholarship right there on the spot. So that's wow. where I was recognized <laughs> as a ball player in college uh, on, on my back. <laughs> 
like Kevin Hart said, you gonna learn today. That's that is an awesome story. Um <laughs> 1959. So that's the year that uh, that Southern won the NAIA national championship. And it, I, I, if 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 I've looked over this thing correctly, it may have been the only time, at least since then, that an HBCU has won a national championship in baseball. What what was that year like? And then ultimately winning that NAIA national championship. NAIA championship uh, had never invited a black school to that tournament. We were the first ever to be invited. And uh, so we got there and we planned to host uh, college with a Sir Ross State uh, in Texas. And uh, we won that game. And we actually had to uh, band together, if you want to say such a thing, band together as a team. We knew uh, nobody wanted us there, but somehow when we beat the favorite, uh, we became the favorite. And now it was this game, the game, the game, the game. And at the end of the, that tournament, when the dust had settled, uh, we had won the championship. Uh, I recall hitting the three-run homer. Uh, we were down to, like three to one. Two men on. I hit a three-run home over center field fence, and then top of the ninth. And after that, we were champion. So it happened so fast when you talk about those kind of things. When you enter those, uh, you know you you're there to play your strength within within yourselves, uh, which was all black guys. And uh, we just banded together and, and decided to uh, show them what we could do. Lou Brock passing away last week at the age. Of 85 and again that interview was from six years ago and I mean just so much information again I've given you eh, maybe close to 30 minutes not quite 30 minutes of that interview if you want to listen to the interview in its entirety you can log on to our website at boxtorow.com we got into a lot of other conversations we talked about the lack of black ball players and what can be done there was a task force at that time, that was put together to study that. I, I don't know whatever happened to that. Uh, obviously, we're we're not where we need to be, uh, and we're at least where we once we're not where we need to be. Certainly not where we once were, as it relates to African Americans in baseball. But a lot of knowledge there. I mean, Lou Brock was one of the greatest to ever play. And by the way, I mentioned. HBCU players, I, you know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Hawk, Andre Dawson, right? Florida A&M, Vince Coleman, the guy that went to Florida A&M as well. There's been so many great players that came out, baseball, and we talk about all sports, but certainly uh, that came out of HBCUs as well. Uh, so again, we salute the legendary, legendary Lou Brock. Rest in peace to Lou Brock again passing away on last week still to come here on from the press box to press row speaking of hbcu players in pro sports we're going to talk about those that made opening day rosters in the national football league as well as some nba talk as from the press box to press row is back after this hey did you hear about the marjorie's beef jerky one million order fundraiser the what 
The Marjorie's Beef Jerky 1 Million Order Fundraiser. No, what is it? It's a fundraiser for Marjorie's Beef Jerky. For every 1 million orders of Marjorie's Pick Any 6 Flavors Beef Jerky, they'll donate $2 million to employ civil rights attorneys and or provide burial costs to people for unjustified murders. Wow, that's pretty cool, and I do love Marjorie's Beef Jerky. I'm going to tell all my friends, and you should too. Marjorie's Beef Jerky, the best beef jerky on the planet. We need your help to reach one million orders so that we can assist those in need. Purchase Marjorie's Beef Jerky online right now at Marjorie'sBeefJerky.com. That's Marjorie'sBeefJerky.com. Or call them toll-free, 844-340-7613. Marjorie's Beef Jerky, the best beef jerky on the planet. The old renaissance is the new renaissance, standing on tradition while embracing the spirit of distinction. This is the Harlem Brewing Company, uniquely crafted beer brewed to deliver a taste, a sound, and a feeling that can only be described in one way, Harlem style. So come and take a trip on the A-Train with our Harlem Sugar Hill Golden Ale and our Harlem Renaissance Whip Beer, the neighborhood original. Sponsored by Harlem Beer Distributing North Carolina. Served in total wine all over North Carolina. Fresh Market in North Carolina and Virginia. Weaver Street Market in Raleigh, Durham, Carborough, and Hillsboro. You can also purchase in Durham at Zwelly's, Salt Box, Sam's Bottle Shop, and Bull McCabe's. And in Greensboro at Elm Street Lounge and Cooper's Ale House. It's Donald Ware, from the press box to press row. National Football League kicked things off on Thursday night with the Chiefs and the Texans getting together. And actually, on Thursday, I was flipping between that game and then game four between the Lakers and the Rockets. I'm going to tell you what, Anthony Caruso hit some big shots. I mean, some huge shots down the stretch for the Lakers, who I pretty much who I think pretty much have this thing wrapped up, up three games to one now. Of course, losing the first game just like the Lakers did against Portland. The Lakers are really, really, really good. I mean, they may get off to the slow starts, but ultimately, I mean, Anthony Davis really comes around and then LeBron James is so steady. I mean, what a game LeBron had as well, and especially in terms of the distribution of the basketball. And, I, I, I'm really looking forward when you're talking about a Lakers and Clippers matchup for the Western Conference Finals. Like that's, I, I think that's pretty much imminent, and that's going to be an awesome matchup. And uh, maybe a little bit later on, we'll talk about the Eastern Conference Finals as well. Let's get back to the National Football League. And Lute Williams, editor of the Black College Sports Page does an absolutely phenomenal job each and every year in terms of in his page right before the start of the NFL season. He lists all of the HBCU players that are on rosters. Right now, there are are 27 former now HBCU players that have made National Football League rosters. We talked a little bit about the Texans. You look at a guy like a Titus Howard, it was a first-round draft pick out of Alabama State last year, and it's an interesting tie-in when you look at Titus Howard. The la- because 
So Dominique Rogers Cromarty, along with Antoine Bate, but more specifically in this situation, DRC is not with a team right now. And he was the last, he's still a free agent. Doesn't mean he's, he can't get picked up or Antoine Bethea for that matter. But the last first round pick prior to Howard was in fact DRC. And it's interesting, DRC not with the team currently right now. But again, 27 players uh, from HBCUs on National Football League opening day rosters. That's down three from last year when 30 were uh, made opening day rosters. The only HBCU player drafted this year was the offensive lineman, Latavius Simmons out of Tennessee State, and he was able to make the practice squad of the Chicago Bears. And I might remind you that he was a seventh-round draft pick. We talked about it a lot when the draft happened that we're seeing a lot less players from HBCUs drafted into the National Football League, and this year you only had one, and that was a seventh-round draft choice in Lechavius Simmons. Ultimately, his former teammate now, Chris Rowland, a box-to-row All-American last year, went undrafted, was able to make the Falcons practice squad as well. Another undrafted uh, uh, rookie free agent, Bobby Price of Norfolk State, made the practice squad of the Lions, as did Gramlings, Montreal, Meander. So you have a couple of guys that uh, were part of, that played football at HBCUs last year that made it uh, on respective teams or at least made practice squads. So with DRC out of the league currently and Antoine Bethay out of the league currently, right now the longest tenured player in the National Football League out of an HBCU is Anthony Levine Sr., ninth season, played at Tennessee State. He's with, of course, the Baltimore Ravens. And then next behind Levine, you look at Teron Armstead, a high draft pick. He protects the blind side of Drew Brees. He's all pro guys. Made the Pro Bowl, I believe, the last couple of years. Um, he is now entering his eighth season in the National Football League. And then you have a lot of guys that have, you know, or a couple of guys that have switched teams this year. You look at a Javon Hargrave. I believe, at least at one time, it's probably changed now, but when Javon Hargrave signed his contract uh, coming over from the Steelers to now the Eagles, he became at that time was the highest paid defensive tackle in the league, certainly one of the best, probably one of the more underrated. You know, he hasn't, He's he's played, like a Pro Bowl player, he's put up some good numbers. He does his job. When you're up front and you're the that defensive tackle, your job isn't necessarily to make tackles. Your job is to occupy that guy, uh, offensive lineman up front, so that the linebacker can come and make the tackle. He's been able to do that. And, oh, by the way, he's made some tackles as well. He has some sacks as well. So I think he's doing, you know, a, a really – a really good job. One of the preeminent players in the league. And then, of course, um, you talk about guys like Tariq Cohen entering his fourth season with Chicago. You talk about, you know, Darius Leonard. I mean, all pro. That guy is really, really good. And I think the sky is the limit ultimately for Darius Leonard. One of right now entering his third season. One of the best linebackers in the National Football League 
for the Colts, formerly of South Carolina State. Let's look at some of the matchups this Sunday as the NFL gets things rocking and rolling. Um, I mean, I got to be honest, you know, a little bit mixed emotions for me because, I, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm a sports fan. I mean, I'm a big sports fan. All, I mean, basically all sports. Uh, but, I, you know, I want to, I want, the guys to continue to be safe. I mean, I want to see, you know, I want to see some ball. And by the way, it felt kind of strange last week not being on location calling a football game because the majority of college football uh, not playing at least in the fall. But I I am glad that uh, the NFL is back. So the Jets at the Bills, I mean, this is a division matchup. I really like the Bills. Like the Bills made – some made some real progress last year. I mean, I think when you look at their defense, that's going to be the strength of the Bills as well. By the way, Daryl Johnson, formerly of North Carolina A&T, uh, should perhaps see some more playing time this year for the Bills. I mean, in that matchup, um, I like the Bills. Boy, the Jets really struggled last year. I realize, you know, they, they had some growing pains, but I, I you know, I, I, I like the Bills. I think the Bills are definitely a playoff team for 2020. Packers are going to be at the Vikings. Boy, Aaron Rodgers, I tell you, um, this is going to be the year, I think, you know, Minnesota, especially with Kirk Cousins, like this is what, the third year of that guaranteed deal? What is Kirk Cousins going to do for the Vikings this year? The Vikings, I thought, took a bit of a step. Well, they didn't take – they made the playoffs. They won a first-round game, I believe. What was it, the Saints? They walked off in overtime, and then Kirk Cousins, as he generally does, melts down. He's going to have to be a little bit more consistent and is going to have to be big in bigger games. Aaron Rodgers, what is what is that offense going to look like uh, uh, this year? I think in this game I like the Vikings. As a matter of fact, I like the Vikings throughout the course of this season because I think the defense is going to be uh, much improved, and I, hopefully uh, Kirk Cousins is going to be more consistent. The Eagles at the Washington football team. My Washington football team, I think, is underrated this year from everything that I've heard. Dwayne Haskins looks very, very good. That defense is going to be great. But I think the one person that's going to make all the difference overall with this Washington football team organization, Ron Rivera, the new head coach there, so many years with the Panthers, a lot of success, including a trip to the Super Bowl going back to 2015, going to gonna be hosting the Eagles. Listen, the Eagles, that NFC East going to be up for grabs this year. I mean, I think the favorite on paper at least has to be the Cowboys. You know, Carson Wentz, is he going to stay healthy this year? What's the, I mean, like, he has to stay healthy if he can stay halfway healthy. I mean, the Eagles are going to challenge the Cowboys um, in this game. I mean, I'm not going to pick against the Washington football team in this game. The Ravens and the Browns, interesting week one matchup. Looking throughout the course of this season to see Lamar Jackson, the reigning league MVP, really take that next step. But it's going to be interesting for the Browns. Like all of that talent Really underachieved, uh, uh, really underachieved last year, but it's a new situation, uh, a new coach for the Browns. But in this game, I like the Ravens. The Jaguars are hosting the Colts. Uh, the Colts, boy, Phillip Rivers, the quarterback now. I mentioned the maniac, Darius Leonard. Jaguars still have a lot of questions that need to be answered in getting rid of 
uh, Fournette was not one of the answers. I like the Colts in that game. The Raiders and the Panthers. This is a rebuilding season as far as I'm concerned for the Panthers. Christian McCaffrey, really, really good. I mean, you talk about a guy who's rare in history that we've seen a 1,000-yard rusher and receiver. He's that kind of guy. The Raiders are going to be improved. I thought the, Ra- the, the Raiders, now Las Vegas Raiders, made an improvement last year. I like the Raiders in that game, the Bears and the Lions. I'm not so, you know, I just don't, you know, I know Matthew Stafford. The Lions just are not a very good um, organization right now. Uh, the Bears, uh, Nagy uh, is elected. They're going to start. Mitchell Trubisky. The Bears have a good defense. I mean, obviously, I, I like the Bears in this game, but I'm interested to see what the Bears are going to do uh, this season. But I don't think they're going to be that third team in the division behind the Vikings and Green Bay, I think, when it's all said and done. The Falcons are hosting Seattle. Seattle's made a lot of moves trying to make that run to the Super Bowl again. Russell Wilson is key. Underrated very much, uh, if you can say that, was probably he was very much underrated the last couple of years. Really has carried um, the Seahawks the last couple of years. The Falcons, um, not you know, only a couple of years removed from being in the Super Bowl, but I think the Falcons have some work to do. Uh, ultimately, although I think they're going to be improved this year, that wide receiving core is very good. Uh, I like the Seahawks in this game. Dolphins. At the Patriots, the Dolphins are going to be improved this year. Watch out for the Dolphins. However, uh, Cam Newton makes his debut with the Patriots. Uh, Bill Belichick has been doing it multiple. I mean, you know, Bill Belichick is Bill Belichick, I think, ultimately. But the Patriots have struggled with the Dolphins in years past, but I'm going with the Patriots in this game. The Chargers and the Bengals. Uh, Wow, what a toss-up. Um, you know, I'm going to go with Anthony Lynn and the Chargers in this game. The 49ers hosting the Cardinals. Interesting matchup. Going to go with the 49ers. Can the 49ers get back to the NFC Championship game? Ultimately, the Saints are hosting the Buccaneers. Uh, Tom Brady makes his debut with Tampa Bay. Drew Brees and the Saints. Uh, I'm going to go with the Saints at home. In this game against the Buccaneers, going to spoil the debut of Tom Brady with the Buccaneers, but the Buccaneers still going to have a really good season. The Rams and the Cowboys. Dak Prescott took a a next step as far as I'm concerned last year. Still that contract situation uh, has not been resolved. I think ultimately the Cowboys are going to win the NFC East. Um, and I like the Cowboys against the Rams. The Rams got a lot of question marks, took a step backwards on last year. The Giants and the Steelers, Ben Roethlisberger is back. The Giants, uh, I just don't see it for the Giants this year. Um, You know, I think the quarterback play is going to be better than it was last year. It was a rookie guy. Uh, Saquon Barkley is going to be even better. Uh, We'll see what happens with the Giants ultimately, but I like the Steelers in this game. Titans, And finally, the Titans and the Broncos, the Monday night matchup. The Titans really surprised a lot of folks. Uh, Derrick Henry, you know, Ryan Tannehill uh, making that AFC uh, championship game last year. The Broncos, think about it. Broncos 2015 uh, (laughs) Super Bowl uh, winners. And then it's gone downhill from there because John Elway has not been able to get the quarterback position right. And ultimately, I don't know what the Broncos are going to do ultimately in this season, but I think Tennessee is going to win that matchup against the Broncos. My time is about up. I thank you for yours. 
Appreciate you listening to From the Press Box to Press Row each and every week. And, of course, for the entire interview with Lou Brock as we take a listen back and remember the life of Lou Brock in his own words, log on to our website at botchtorow.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram as well and tell a couple of friends about the program that can be listened to each and every week on the station or the platform that you're listening to the program on currently. And always remember to support those that support you. From the Press Box to Press Row is presented by DW Communications. Loving you is like a song I replay every three minutes and 30 seconds of every day. Uh.